You're listening to the Bible Brush Up Podcast. We have just completed the book of Isaiah, and uh, we have jumped into the book of Hosea. And for those of you that are keeping up with the reading plan in a timely manner, you're done with Hosea already. So this podcast comes a little late in the series. We've had an eventful week getting ready for our big trunk or treat bash uh, here at Living Water Church. And so it's consumed a lot of time and uh, had not gotten the opportunity to jump in here and do a podcast. And uh, this is a reminder to all of us that reading plans are there to encourage you to keep pace and to encourage you to be in the Word daily, but uh, life does happen. And so do not be discouraged if you fall behind. Do not be discouraged if you miss a day because of some event in life that prevents you from getting in the Word that day. Uh, Of course, you can always reflect and meditate on what was previously read the day before or the previous week, Um, but when you hit a slump, just get back into it, and that's, uh, I've had to do that a couple of times during this series where uh, a lot of ministerial stuff comes up. I haven't had the opportunity to dive back into the reading plan uh, for a few days, and so then I just play catch up when I get the opportunity, and I think that's just uh, life as we know it, and uh, I just want to encourage you in that uh, regard. I don't want anybody to give up on the reading plan and to just toss it into the wastebasket because you fell a week behind or two weeks behind. Uh, at, at, at the very worst, just start over where we're at. Uh, and don't worry about what you missed. You can always go back and reread that. Um, reading the Bible is not something you do once and then you put it on a shelf. As Christians, we are uh, lifelong learners and readers of Scripture, and so you will go back to those passages eventually. Don't worry about it. Uh, just get in where we're at and uh, continue to trek along in the reading of God's Word, and I promise you it will be beneficial and a blessing to your life. And so Hosea is the topic for today, even though we are starting and finishing the book of Joel. It's only three chapters, so it's a really quick read. So we may talk about him briefly as well, but Hosea is unique in that he's one of the few prophets that were sent to the northern kingdom. If you recall, under the reign of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the nation experienced a divide where the northern kingdom split away from the southern kingdom. And so now we have Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. In Judah is where Jerusalem is. That's where the line of David continues to rule uh, because he is from the house of Judah. And so they have an allegiance to the Davidic king, but the northern kingdom does not have that allegiance. They no longer value the Davidic line as their ruler, and now they have a a series of different rulers that have started with Jeroboam, and by the time Hosea writes, it's actually a a descendant of Jeroboam, and his name is Jeroboam as well, Jeroboam II. And so we have Jeroboam II on the throne. This prophecy comes after a time of prosperity. Israel has been thriving. They are rich. They are prosperous. They've experienced peace. Uh, They probably think that splitting away from the southern kingdom was the best thing that they had ever done. But what they do not realize is that in splitting away from the southern kingdom and by refusing to go to Jerusalem to worship and to sacrifice at the temple and to honor the Davidic king that God had appointed over them, they're sinning. And their sin is becoming more and more widespread. And it's, as sin does, it morphs and mutates into other sins. And so we read about drunkenness. We read about bloodshed. We read about 
um, oppression and neglecting the weak. Uh, we read about all these different offenses that Israel has begun to commit, and they are now going to be punished. And Hosea comes and warns them that there is coming a a sentence, a verdict uh, from God that they are guilty and that there will be consequences if they do not repent and turn back to God. Now, another unique thing about Hosea, as you have already read, is that Hosea is a prophet who doesn't just speak the truth, but he has to live out the truth. He is a walking, talking sign in his very life of what is to come. And there are other prophets who had to communicate through um, sign acts, as some have labeled it. Uh, but these sign acts uh, are seen in Isaiah. He had to walk around naked for three years. That's, uh, that's quite strange, and it seems like that would be a sin, which for anybody else, yes, that is a sin. Don't do that. But God was using Isaiah to walk around uh, and communicate. As people looked at him, it would be a shock to them, and they would understand that God was communicating uh, something through that nakedness. Uh, Ezekiel, we'll get to him shortly, but he is going to be told to bake bread over human waste. And that human waste is going to communicate the stench and the filth of the, the sinfulness of the nation. And uh, so as people are repulsed by that sign, it is communicating something uh, that they need to understand. Uh, Jeremiah had sign acts in his ministry. Uh, he's smashing jars before an audience. Uh, I believe my memory recalls right, he's the one who had to bury his undergarments. Uh, so there are many things that come out of the prophetic ministry that would shock us, not just in what they say, but what they do. And Hosea is maybe the most supreme um, example of that. Hosea has to marry a prostitute. And nowhere else in Scripture would you be commended for marrying a prostitute. In fact, we are told as Christians to avoid such uh, unions. We are to avoid entering into relationships that are unequally yoked. But yet here, God is commanding that the prophet Hosea go and marry someone who he is unequally yoked with. He is a minister of God, someone who is prophetically uttering the divine truth uh, from the Almighty God, the Creator, and yet he is told to go and unite himself to a whore. And this wife of his is going to go and commit adultery. She's going to go and she's going to uh, have sexual intimacy with many partners. And Hosea is doing this and marrying this person on purpose. Why? To communicate the betrayal of Israel. The northern kingdom has gone as the Bible puts it in some translations, a whoring. She has gone out and has connected and united herself to other gods. She has bowed down to the Baals. She has worshipped at the Asherah poles. She has um, gone to the gods of Molech. Israel has proven that she does not trust in Yahweh. She does not love Yahweh. She is not faithful to Yahweh. Yahweh has been faithful to her, just like Hosea is going to be faithful to Gomer, his wife, but Gomer is unfaithful like Israel is unfaithful. And this 
is definitely true in the life of Israel. They certainly have proven themselves unfaithful. Um, but when we read this, we need to understand that to a certain extent, this is true for all of us. Um, even though God has never been unfaithful to us, he's never, ever failed in even one promise that he has made to us. We fail him day in and day out. We have committed sins. We have transgressed against him, even in salvation. Even as people of the church, we have still continued to sin. Um, and so even though we look at this with disgust and we're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this, uh, we certainly have to understand that we too are Gomer in this story. We're not the faithful husband. Uh, we are the unfaithful wife. But the story as a whole, if you get to chapter 3, Hosea is supposed to go and redeem this treacherous woman, this woman who has been unfaithful. And that's what God has done for us. Even though we were sinners, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to wash us and to cleanse us and to purify us. And in Hosea, we get the beautiful language of Israel, who is called not my people. He names uh, some children from Gomer uh, that represent Israel, and they're called not my people. And he is going to make them his people. So even though the betrayal and the infidelity has resulted in what would be equated to a great divorce, uh, or at least a, a, a breaking of the marital union, God is not giving up on his people, but there will be a remnant that will be saved. Now, what's really fascinating about this is Peter turns around, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he uses this language to describe the church. He says that we were called not my people, but now we are called my people. This is found in 1 Peter 2, verse 10. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy, which is another one of the kids uh, named in the book of Hosea. Not, no mercy and receiving mercy is the opposite of that child. So even though Israel deserved no mercy, even though Israel deserved to be not a people, God is going to come and make them a people and make them uh, recipients of mercy. How does he do that? Well, I, th I think that the fulfillment of that is here in First Peter chapter 2. It's not something that's happening on, on the national level. It's something that's happening on the kingdom level of the new covenant. And so any Israelite, no matter what tribe they're from, no matter whether it's southern kingdom, northern kingdom, no matter whether it's outside of the bloodline of Israel, those who come to Christ, they experience the redemption that Gomer needed to be reinstated with her husband. Um, she needs the forgiveness of sins. She needs the cleansing. She needs all of that. And that's what we get in the church. Through the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, we are made right with God. We are brought back into relationship with him. We are made the bride of Christ. And anyone can experience that. Even though we are not a people of God, even though we were far from him, he has beautifully made a way to restore us back into marital faithfulness. So now he looks at us through the work of Christ as a spotless bride. Though we were impure and though we were unfaithful, we have been made beautiful and perfect and holy in the sight of God through the work of Jesus Christ. It's such a beautiful story. And even though it has an ugly beginning and even though the, the language is quite startling. Um, it 
certainly opens our eyes to the beautiful truth of redemption and restoration that we find in Scripture. Um, now, very quickly, the book of Joel, we're getting into that. We're going to read the three chapters today if we are lucky enough to set aside some time. I know it's busy for us living water church folks today, but um, those of you that can, we see Joel as a prophet to the southern kingdom, and Joel is reminding the southern kingdom of the uh, great disaster that's coming upon them. The northern kingdom has been warned. The Assyrians are going to come. They're going to destroy. Um, but now the southern kingdom is warned that they are going to face a similar threat. And that uh, is made through the metaphor of the locust plague. And the locusts, as you may already know, if a locust plague comes upon the territory, they can come in and they can eat up the crops of an entire uh, continent very quickly if the right circumstances unfold. So this is a, a very disastrous warning, uh, and that is exactly what's going to unfold for the people of Judah. The Babylonians are going to come in like locusts. They're going to devour the crops. They are going to uh, come as warriors, and they are going to shed blood. They're going to take people captive. They're going to burn the land and burn the temple. And all of this is being presented as a warning so that the people would repent. That's usually what the prophets are doing. They're looking for repentance, but they find none most of the time. The people are unwilling to repent and turn from their iniquity. Joel provides us with a very important concept for our New Testament interpretation as he predicts a time where the Spirit of God will pour out on the sons and daughters of the Israelites, and they will dream dreams, and they will uh, have visions, and uh, all sorts of uh, phenomena that are associated with the Spirit of God. And, of course, when on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God is poured out on the church, this fulfills what was written here in the book of Joel. And that's what Peter says in that sermon. He says this fulfills this. Um, now, some people say, well, how can it fulfill it? Because it says that the sun will be darkened, the moon will turn to blood, uh, and it'll be the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so certainly um, there are elements of it that are yet to be completely fulfilled. But we have to remember that even in Isaiah, the description of the destruction of Egypt is bathed in the same type of cosmic language where the sun is darkened. Um, there's a, a writing on the cloud by God coming in judgment. I mean, this type of language is not always to be taken literally. And so anytime there is a huge major shift where it changes uh, the entire trajectory of human history, it's certainly described with this type of cosmic language, sort of like we would say the world was turned upside down or he shook the earth that day. Um, maybe it wasn't a literal shaking, but it certainly was cosmically significant. And so that is the kind of thing that we see on the day of Pentecost. That changed human history forever. And um, that will certainly be true when Jesus comes. So we can say that, yeah, when Jesus comes one day, the sun will be dark and the moon will turn to blood. Whether those things happen literally or whether that's just an expression of how significant that event will be, uh, it really doesn't change anything. You don't need to be looking for blood moons. You don't need to be counting how many solar eclipses have occurred in the last couple of years to predict the coming of Christ. Those, uh, that's not what's intended by Joel. Um, but certainly when Jesus comes, we'll know and the cosmic signs will accompany his return. We'll stop there. We'll pick it up next time on the Bible Brush Up podcast.